popsicle to show. Remember, da- Dasher. You remember. <laughs> Dasher and Dancer and Comet and Cupid. I just did it. I, I can't think of their fucking names now. Whatever. You listen to Mormon and the Meth Head. If you put a Mormon and a Meth Head together, this is what they sound like. So read our friends, listen to them talking to Mike. It was gonna be great, guys. I just, I just did it. <laughs> what are their their names? Dasher and Dance. It doesn't matter. Merry Christmas, one and all. You're here on the Christmas episode of Mormon and the Meth Head. And, uh, Jessa, do you say, when, do you, do you say Merry Christmas or do you say Happy Honda Days, my big bitch? <laughs> would you check out, would you get your coffee at Starbucks? What do you say? There's a, there's a comedian that I love named Rhett Bryan. Uh, Byram, fuck, I can't do anything. Byram. And he tweeted, he tweeted, um, at Donald Trump one day. <laughs> happy honda days my big bitch <laughs> and is i that when you start i wake up big bitch? yeah <laughs> i wake up at night a year later still thinking about that tweet <laughs> and i just am like that's i don't think anything's ever going to be funnier than that it was a it was like a reply to donald trump being like Merry Christmas, everybody. Now that I'm in office, we can say Christmas again. Do you remember those years that that saying the word Christmas was punishable by death? (laughs) Thank God we made America great again. And then Rhett just tweeted, Happy Honda Days, my big bitch. (laughs) I like saying Merry Christmas. I like the week before Christmas, I get really into it. And I just start telling everyone Merry Christmas. Like, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Christmas. I don't think anyone's ever offended if I tell them Merry Christmas. You Nobody know? is. Nobody it's is. It's all this made up stuff like now they want people you want Santa to gender be genderless. Santa. Yeah, and it's like, no, you're just making shit up. Mm. What was I just thinking was made up the other day? Oh, Amazon package thieves. I was like, who's stealing all these packages off of porches? And you were like, that's a real thing. It oh, happens. my God. It's insane to me that I you just, don't. I haven't uh, had a porch in a while. Okay, that's, yeah, your shit gets put in a mailbox. Um, I would have loved Amazon to exist back. That's all we would have ever done was run around and steal packages off of people's porch. Does seem pretty easy unless you're you a NASA are a engineer idiot. who has invented a glitter bomb package deterrent. Did you watch that whole video? No, I don't give a shit. It's pr- well, it it was not only a glitter bomb; it was also fart spray. <laughs> Is it real? You watched it, and you're sure it's real? Yeah. Okay, because in my mind, I was like. I just don't believe any viral video, and so I see everyone talking about this video, and I'm like, I bet that's that dude's friend came over and pretended no, to steal the package. No, they used it on several people. He's so smart, though. He used the fart spray to get people to throw the thing back out of their car so he could retrieve it to repurpose it to use it again. So there's multiple people that's uh-huh. used it. So it goes poof with the glitter, and then while the people were like, what the fuck was that? And it goes, it just fills their car with fart. <laughs> and then they just lose their minds and chuck it out the window. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's gonna make a million dollars selling those in mass. Uh, is he, he's he's producing them. Like uh, he sell? should, he should. Uh, okay, that's good for him then. Very very funny prank. Can we talk about the Christmas story? The movie. <laughs> I hated that movie when I was a kid. That's not what I meant, but I did. I didn't. That that movie is for me as a kid was really depressing. Like Santa kicks him in the face, and his he shoots his eye out, and like he cries when he beats up that bully, and like and bloodies his nose, and he gets soap in his mouth, and then goes blind from from soap poisoning. He he gets his friend Fergus in trouble for. 
like he's you hear his friend getting beat on the other end of the phone and like i might watch my dad just cackle during this movie and i would just be like i don't like how this movie makes me feel i think it'd probably be better as an adult now but uh too busy watching die hard to care uh you probably don't have any famous or favorite christmas movies do you no, I don't think I ever watch movies at Christmas. Dude, we watch so many movies at Christmas. I can love tell. It. I love it. Uh, now, I wanted to talk about uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, like that Christmas story. Oh. That one. I, like when I brought, when I told that story about Venice and reading that, I used to love, used to love the Christmas story, man. When I was, when I believed Christ was born like it was like this huge i liked thinking about jesus being born i liked i loved i loved what a happy holiday it was that it when what it what like the you know the quote-unquote true meaning of christmas was i was like that our savior was born and it's beautiful and i loved talking about how like mary's faith and joseph's faith and uh, I love talking about the shepherds and the wise men. And I loved all like the, the factual things. Like we had this book called Unto Us, A Child Is Born that talked a lot, of, like that took the, the it kind of challenged all our stereotypical ideas of what it looked like. And I love that kind of shit. When it's like, okay, when you think about the nativity scene, you think about this manger and it's just like them alone in this big old barn. That's not what it looked like at all. This is what it looked like. There were places on the road for travelers. Like, and they were, uh, so there's a lots of people there with them and they were just like in this stable thing or like, you know, they talked about, Oh, I love this kind of stuff yeah, when I was yeah, a Christian too. Me too. And I, and I felt like, Oh, it made it so much richer and stuff. Then I read this book called, um, shit, zealot, zealot. Um, really cool book. That's like this guy is uh, trying to, uh, it's, uh, Reza Os- Aslan. I don't, I forget, but, um, he, like studied the history of Jesus, like all the historical context. And he gave a completely different account. And like in his book, he talked about how this, uh, the account that we get in Luke is bullshit and never happened. And I was like, what? But he said that it was, if I'm remembering it correctly, he said that everyone at the time it was written would have known that it was not factual that it wasn't meant to deceive people, but it was meant to be a symbolic story. So like what he says is we have no record whatsoever of a census where, because that's what the, that there, there went out in the land, a decree that all men should return to, to the, their birthplace uh-huh, yeah. to be, to be counted. And he's like, we have no record and Rome kept pretty good records. Uh, we have a lot of records from ancient Rome, and we don't have any other mention of this census. And then he says, think for a minute about how ridiculous this idea is. You're telling me Rome, which well, at the time was the entire world as far as they were concerned. Right. You're telling me that the the governor, like the, the head, the Caesar, whatever, would shut down the whole world and t- and, and take a few weeks off for every single person to go home go back to the place you were born rather than just listing the place you were born on the census right you could just knock on their door and be like and and your name joseph and where you from bethlehem great (laughs) got it it's like no 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 no. you go back to bethlehem and then we'll count you the bureaucracy here and and that blew my mind i was like what of course that didn't happen and and I and I couldn't believe it. So uh in But he, he's like pro religion? I don't think he is anymore. He was um a Muslim who converted to Christianity uh, as a teenager and then loved it so much that he went to school and got like multiple PhDs in in religion and stuff and as he studied more his faith was really challenged and now i think he's he's atheist now oh, but interesting. I, um he's uh if i remember if i remember correctly but 
uh, that was not good. I tried to tell my parents about this book and how much I was enjoying it and stuff. I was like, well, you were still Mormon. Yeah. And, and I was like a cool, progressive, open-minded Mormon. And they wouldn't let me talk about this book. They just shut down and they were just like, well, I think it happened. And I was like, okay, well, uh, and, or no, they would just, they would just like throw questions at this guy. They're like, well, well, why do you believe him? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I read his book and like, oh, so you're just gonna believe everything you read, huh? And I was like, I mean, uh, I guess, I don't know. Uh, don't you read things to learn things? Like I, I don't just read books and go, fuck. <laughs> like throw it, I finish a book and I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> I don't believe a single fucking thing you wrote. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like I didn't understand why they were being so defensive because I was like I'm not saying I, like for me it it just to to understand that like it, it put things in a new context and helped me believe better so he was saying that like they didn't they didn't write it down that way as a lie because it was an obvious lie like people would have read that and been like what census right <laughs> like does anyone remember <laughs> Hey, hey, guys, does any like 50 years ago, does anyone remember having to go back to Bethlehem? Because I did I miss how drunk was I in the year zero? Um, but they it was it was meant to be symbolic uh, by because he says he says Jesus definitely absolutely was not born in Bethlehem, that uh, he was born in Nazareth, that in like in his own by his own admission, like he calls himself the Nazarene and other people in scripture and other historical documents call him the Nazarene. And that's very important. And uh, uh, he says that, like, his by putting him Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. By putting him in Bethlehem, they are saying they're making the link to David and they are telling you in code that Christ is a divinical savior, meaning he is going to be uh, like a war king. Like this, like that's David. David was this powerful king that conquered shit. He's the guy, you know, that, that slew Goliath and, and stuff. It's like, so by connecting him to David, that's, that's the message to the reader. And he says that all the readers at this time would have understood that plainly. That like by putting him, by telling this, it's an allegory. It's just a story. Right. But like no one, th no one thought it was like a lie or whatever. But then you fast forward thousands of years. The Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. No one remembers it, any of this stuff. And today, you know, in, in a America we you just put the read business it and we take card it. in the locker in men in black yeah <laughs> you take it at face value and you're just and, uh, and that's all I'm like I thought that this added a lot of rich context to the story I already loved about Jesus and then right. Reza talks about how Jesus would have been born on a dirt floor in Nazareth and he's like Nazareth was like this teeny tiny town that had no had nobody like and he talked about like what his real life would have been like he didn't go to Egypt that that story is not true uh, and like he talked about uh, being uh, or maybe did he say that i forget but he did, the thing that i remember the most is him talking about uh herod that was building uh some giant uh palace when jesus was a kid and that if jesus if joseph was a carpenter living in nazareth all of the work like they all were like leaving during the week and going to uh jerusalem to build this palace as we're all like, you know, there's a, Herod's a job creator. Okay, we're right. trickling down, right? <laughs> so like, that's the only place like a carpenter's going to get work from Nazareth, because Nazareth is just a bunch of of clay huts. You know, there's not a lot of work there. And then he talk. I mean, he talks a lot about Jesus being a political um, uh, zealot, right? Like okay. and how he wanted to overthrow Rome and stuff. Is is his is his theory on Jesus, and. Uh, Herod gets some specific mentions from Jesus in the scriptures. He calls him a fox. He says, go and tell that fox. And it's like, we don't have anyone else that Jesus, uh, like, calls names. We don't have any other record of that. But we do know that Jesus had a big problem with this dude. He was also like, uh, he refused to speak in his presence. 
you know, like he had, uh, if I'm listening, am I combining two things? Anyway, like there was, he had a chance to stand before him and he refused to speak. And so the author just posits all the, this theory, just saying like, uh, if this, this, if like, say we take him as like a, a political revolutionary, a man of the people, a man from a dirt f- that was born on a dirt floor in Nazareth and then spent his formative years uh, slaving away and building a giant fucking palace for the 1% and then grows up to become a leader uh, and, uh, and a rabble rouser. Uh, like, like it just like I, I loved thinking about that context and like, sure, dad, uh, it is just a theory because my dad was like, well, I mean, does he know? How does he know? I'm like, he's just he's guessing. But it was like cool to read that book and think about uh, a more accurate Jesus. You right. Know? Did, what does he say about the virgin birth? Uh, I don't I mean, I don't think he believes in the divinity of Christ at all. I think he believes that uh, uh, he was a man who sought to overthrow government and that all the religion stuff came after his death and they uh, were finding a way to sell this story under Roman rule. And so, you know, it's just like you make it a, a, a religion and then, you know, years and years Holy and years fuck. and then years it just becomes years the by and it's just yeah religion an emperor converts uh, along the way the and then makes everyone else be christian and then you know you just whatever so he i think he definitely believes that uh he's joseph and mary's child and that all the this divinity uh was edited in in post as you can say holy shit but all this stuff yeah that he just like he and he he talks about there was lots of cool evidence too where he, uh like the fact that he was crucified um was a uh, a big deal like they they crucified enemies of the state is what Rome like did they crucified dissenters people that uh oh like uh Pilate in in our uh Christmas story or then sorry this is an Easter story my bad he's like sort of benevolent like he it's the jews that kill jesus and and he's the one that's like i wash my hands of this because i believe this man is telling the truth do you remember the story yeah he's like oh he asks him all these questions and jesus tells him all these answers and he's astounded and he wants to um what gives him barnabas as the other option or something and the crowd is like nah we want to crucify jesus and he's like oh my god they're making a mistake. I'm going to wash my hands of this in a big show. And Reza's like, we have um, documents. We, the, we have letters about what an asshole Pilate was. Pilate was famous, famous for crucifying people. L- like the Jews in Jerusalem wrote letters to Rome they were like, hey, do you know that your governor is out here crucifying entire towns? There was a town that didn't like want to pay taxes or something, and he was like, all right, cool. And then he crucified everyone. Every single person on that town got put on a cross and left there until they died. Jesus. And like they have letters from Rome to him being like, you need to calm the fuck down, dude. You need to reel it way back in. <laughs> And, like, to know, like, that context and be like, okay, well, that does not sound like the dude in our Easter story, you know? So we had a play that I would love to watch with you. I'm sure I have it on tape called Bloodbot. Bloodbot. B-O-U-G-H-T. Because the first time someone told me about it, I thought it was a a bloody robot, for sure. (laughs) And it is the pastor narrating the story and then the people acting it out i was in it a couple times i played a demon (gasps) you and he had these like medical facts or whatever so this made this play like so awesome i don't know if they were real at one point the because the bible says blood and water flowed Uh and he had these facts about how the only way that that would happen is if your heart had broken so jesus actually died of a broken Uh heart i've heard heard that that stuff yeah 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 i love i live for that kind of stuff I ate that. I, up. I loved that. this place so much uh, cuz at one point a super super tall guy would play god and come out in this just all sequined like uh thing over top of him mm-hmm. and then it would be a countdown like Jesus would be dead in this cave on one side of the stage 
and there would be a countdown and God would look very sad and uh, like head hanging and Satan would be like run around the stage like okay okay hurry up hurry up and then God's like counting down and Satan's trying to get Jesus to stay down but then God says when he gets to one God like throws his arm over and then they had like what's it called like uh fireworks I don't know like a um pyrotechnics really? hooked up in the street yeah this church was no joke <laughs> and so he throws his arm up and then this pyrotechnics thing goes across the whole stage and then blows up the cave and jesus comes out of it damn and it was like such i got goosebumps thinking about it <laughs> like this church was so good at these super emotional things that would just make you would leave this play being like fuck yeah like so excited but i can't remember any other it's is cool <laughs> I can't remember any of the other facts, but he had all these like trippy facts about, but Pontius Pilate was a douche and only put Barnabas up. If I remember correctly, he only put Barnabas up to give the illusion of creating a choice mm -hmm. so that he could pretend that, and that it, they had him washing his hands like that. He went crazy afterwards and couldn't yeah. get the blood off of his hands. Yeah. He, so I remember in the book being like uh, him pointing out everyone else that got crucified, like Barnabas that was also up for, uh, the gallows, um, was a revolutionary that like the word, like the, that we talk about, like he was su surrounded by thieves, but yeah. like he gets into like the Latin word that like is used there. And it's like, that's thief is a translation, but really like these, they were probably like what I believe is like, they were also uh, these uh, from this type of this like group of bandits that were trying to overthrow the Roman state. And like, uh, so when you put Jesus in between those two, it made kind of obvious what they, what Rome considered Jesus. They weren't crucifying him because he said he was the son of God. Uh, like, I, like, Oh, you know, what's really interesting is, is that in that play they said Barnabas translates back to every man's son. Mm, and I remember something like this. All these things that we thought were like, wow, look how this symbolism turned out in what happened. But it's actually like, no, it was written as symbolism. Exactly. Yeah, I thought that was cool. My parents did not. <laughs> you like, I don't believe everything you read. Uh, I mean... You do. The only <laughs> book you've read is is the Book of Mormon, and you believe it wholeheartedly. So I don't know why you're coming at me with this uh, sass. I mean, clearly you're making someone you're challenging. I know, version but of I didn't reality, think that I was going. I didn't. It was your version of reality, also, uh, which I, should be disarming. Right, and they the, they they just they didn't like it. That's bananas, though. That an entire religion was bait. I still think he was magic. Maybe I don't know. I haven't ruled out the possibility that Joseph Smith was magic. That doesn't mean they're good. Yeah. It's, it's. Jesus seemed pretty cool. I, it feels now challenging. When you talk about him being magic, I feel like my dad, when I told him Jesus wasn't magic, you know, like I, I feel like for all the pain that I went through, I now need Jesus to have just been a dude that got hyped up after he died. Because if he was magic, then I feel like then I've made the wrong choice or now I have to go and re-examine more stuff or something. Like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't want him to be magic. I like this. I like this zealot idea much more. Than he was just a dude. I think he w I think it's taken out of context. But I think even going back and reading those stories from a different perspective, realizing that those stories were used to control people, looking at them as a pneumatic soul instead of a psychic disciplinarian i think it makes i don't know i just never it, it never stopped feeling christianity stopped feeling real immediately upon going to the blue light but jesus always still felt mm -hmm. legit i still think that like there's so much cool stuff to be learned from understanding the context because we are so far removed like there's this story when they try to trick Jesus and like say, oh, well, do you believe in paying taxes or something like that? If you say everything goes to God, whatever. And he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's 
and render unto God that which is God's. I feel like that was always presented to me as, uh, look how wise Jesus is. And like they tried to trick him and um, he had this perfect answer prepared. And we would talk about like, yeah, just we as Mormons, we believe in paying our taxes, give, yeah. give to give to the government that which is the government. And then, you know, also pay your tithing. Like that's how that story yep. was used. And Reza was uh, told this completely different story. He was like, that was not some like clever step around answer. People were shocked when he gave that answer. Like he committed treason by giving that answer. I can't remember all the specifics. You would have to check it out. And I feel like I would butcher it if I tried. But something about like what he said was like <gasps> we're gonna go tell caesar what you said and he was like yeah fuck off dude i don't care tell oh because you, it's not girl. his because my money is my money and is not yeah it's something like that it's Holy something like shit. that it was something like uh like it, it, like basically reza translated it as like don't give caesar shit yeah. Caesar can have what's his and uh, we'll take what's ours or something like that I don't I don't rem I feel bad for not remembering but like it like there were a hundred little things like that that uh, completely changed my perspective on certain scripture stories and I thought it was so cool and could not find any Mormons that would talk to me about this book I love this I want to keep talking about it I read the story of Jesus even back then, and I think that's why I spent so much time wanting to like look things up in the concordance and the Greek Hebrew and shit. I read him as a very rebellious, anti-government person. I've always said, I mean, a lot of people say that the government, the Christians would fucking hate him if he existed now. But let's say that a group of people wake up during an era where everyone is dead asleep and completely immersed in a fear-based reality. Let's say you wake up and realize that reality is not real and that you can do whatever you want and that people are being knowingly oppressed and controlled and you decide to buck against that. That also fills a lot of the gaps in that story. Okay, I just Googled it. This is what this now I'm reading a bunch of different things from this is like a review of the book. OK, uh, this is a quote. What is significant about this episode, what is impossible to ignore is how blatant and inescapably zealous Jesus's actions at the temples at the temple appear. The render unto Caesar, uh, according to Aslan, Jesus was telling his audience to give back to Caesar what belongs to him, namely the coin that has his face on it, and to give back to God what belongs to God, namely the land of Israel. He's saying, uh, get rid of the foreign invaders. Oh, uh, shit. He says, like, let, like the, the title that's on his cross, King of the Jews, is like, it's about... He's being punished for the crime of sedition. Like this was a man that wanted to to kick out the Roman invaders and was claiming to be the new Messiah to lead the Jews to freedom and and like take their take their land back, you know. So these these people come at him about like, oh, well, what do you feel about, uh, you know, taxes? And he's like, let them take all their fucking coins back as long as they get their goddamn Roman asses out of our country Holy you can have shit. all your, you can have all your coins with your faces printed on it this is god's land god you know like you're putting your graven image like on coin or whatever good for you get the hell out of our temple you know uh it's a much cooler jesus in my mind yeah very john mcclain jesus if uh if i do say so myself god my brain is now having this like paradigm shift where it's running all these stories through my head he was definitely anti-government he was definitely it was it's weird to me the kind of people that call themselves christians now and that celebrate this gun-toting law-abiding patri patriotic just bullshit it's like you're exactly everything that he hated your churches are everything that he hated if he did come back he would fucking hate you and you would fucking hate him. He could have already come back and you have him in a detention center somewhere. I feel like he was awake and that the people in the book of Acts, all the people in the Fox's book of martyrs were all awake. And it would make sense if you were, had realized that people were being controlled 
and manipulated and lied to. Oh, that's a lot to think about. Um, Jessa, what was Christmas like when you were on meth? And you didn't have any packages couple, to steal. I know there were a couple Christmases that we just didn't acknowledge that it was Christmas. That the holidays didn't exist. <laughs> Obama's America. Not, yeah, <laughs> not like, just like shit was sad and depressing, bad time of year. There was one Christmas, the Christmas where my friend got his throat cut. And I went up to Spokane for a couple weeks. It was Christmas time. Uh, that's a bummer. What, and you let that get you guys down? <laughs> Um, I would love to see a Hallmark Channel Christmas movie made, but in a meth community rather than like in Park City, Utah, every, every, <laughs> just, just like just, sopping just one, up your friend's blood. And yeah, then... just one, all you need is like one small town man uh, to teach your uh, meth lab the true meaning of Christmas. And then you guys all all fall in love with this strapping young farm boy <laughs> with a jaw that could cut glass and uh, a jaw that could cut a throat. <laughs> How'd your friend get his throat cut? Um, by the cops, I guess. What? Or maybe they said it was a suicide attempt. Oh my god, I remember this story. Yeah, it's a dark fucking story. Not um, appropriate for our Christmas episode. Not for our Christmas episode. Okay. We'll save it. But that was the first Christmas on meth. And then the next one, the Christmas where I had the triplex, uh, where my friend Bubbles had give, had uh, let me ruin his house with a bunch of my friends. Very nice of him. Uh, he came to the show in Portland. That's who I was. We were super busy, but that's yeah, right, what I was right. like, pointing out. But anyway, the year in that house was the big identity thief year. So everybody was just like stealing, like, uh, you, cause everyone's so busy at Christmas time. They can't, they don't have time to fuck with whether or not your check is real, you know? So everyone got so much stuff. And then I came up with the idea for the great return, which was a great name for a thing where we just take all these boxes of electronics and fill them with things of equal weight and then return them the day after Christmas, which is the greatest, busiest uh, day of the year for returns. They're going to be too busy to look in the boxes and see that we've actually just put old shoes in here. So let's go old do the great return. A box of what? <laughs> a va- it was like a vacuum, <laughs> like an auric vacuum cleaner, and you just put shoes inside? <laughs> I mean, I figured you could weigh stuff on the scale and then see, you know, whatever felt reasonable. But I couldn't do that. I couldn't do any of the crime because I didn't have teeth. So it was like I'm just begging to get caught. Yeah, they check. They they look inside the box if you don't have teeth. If you have meth mouth and you're returning a $500 vacuum cleaner. When I tried to steal those suitcases the other day, I was dressed like a bum and it went. I didn't try to steal the suitcases. She was thinking about was maybe thinking stealing about suitcases just to get that old rush again. Anyway, if you guys could see Jess's face, the contempt that she still has for her unrealized great return idea. <laughs> Jessa needs her genius to be recognized and, uh, and like praised or something. <laughs> and I can tell that like in your eyes, I can hear other people rolling theirs at you <laughs> like you told them all about the great return and they're like okay jessa sure yeah we'll do that and you're it's you're still so how many years ago <laughs> it's so smart we just had boxes brand new boxes of all of these things why not return them and get money because back then they give you cash you yep. know so i don't know why nobody listened to me and uh, it did bother me a little bit. I did have some bad crime ideas. I wasn't really cut out for. But that was the good year of identity thieving when yeah, you got I really you guys stole a bunch of stuff after that. Oh, the Christmas right before I got clean, I went to my dad's house for Christmas. Yeah, you told me that story many and, times, and um, that facilitated me getting clean later. So there's one in there that I don't remember. Didn't you? Didn't they give you money to buy Christmas presents for everyone? Immediately upon my arrival, <laughs> I had done all my drugs on the way to, to Delaware because uh, I got busted with a meth pipe. Anyway, I uh, I got busted dropping a meth pipe into a trash can like a psycho because I hadn't been in the airport. Since. Right, right. Anyway, 
then I get to Delaware and my dad gives me money and I immediately Western Union it. He gives me money to get everyone in Delaware Christmas presents and then I Western Union it back to Jason to send me uh, drugs, which he did not. And uh, then I just like didn't have presents for anybody, but my dad's not an idiot. So I was just like, I bought a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> and then all the rest of my Christmases are fine. The Christmas that I was sick with Lily sucked. I found out I was pregnant at the end of November, went to Hawaii and had the worst Hawaii experience in the history of Hawaii of experiences. Hawaii. I booked a flight and even got insurance on the flight, which I never do because that was like the small voice, like intuition being like, don't do this. And then it was just like, oh, I'll be fine. And even if I'm not fine, uh, Hawaii is a great place to be sick which is ridiculous the only great place to be <laughs> sick is your fucking house so we're there for five days and for five days i'm just dying i then go to get onto the flight at the end of my five days i spent the last night we had checked out of the hotel and went to the super nice lady's house where she had this bomb ass like lanai that we're all sitting out on top of a hill looking at hawaii and i'm just i just have tears running down my face i'm just sobbing Cause that's the kind of sick I get is just, I'm not always throwing up, but I'm right before you throw up that, that sweat and that just living hell right before you throw up. I stay at that for 23 Ugh. hours a day. Anyway, uh, that Christmas sucked because I had to go to Chicago. We'd already planned a Chicago Christmas mm -hmm. with his family before I got pregnant and they drove. I ended up flying the I looked so wrecked when I got to the airport because like just walking across an airport was impossible. Just I would have to stop and lean. And by the way, when you look like you're dying of the flu, people are mean to you. And then I just feel compelled to be like, I'm pregnant. I don't have the actual flu because people <laughs> feel like you're getting onto an airplane and going to make them contagious, which is what happened in Hawaii. I think. That's a, a situation where it's like, okay, why are you putting everyone here at risk of your germs? But in general, I hate the attitude of people that get mad because you got them sick. And you're like, man, we're on the same side, dude. I'm not patient zero. I didn't yeah. come, I didn't invent <laughs> this disease. I don't I, remember uh, it at all, but I used to have a bit about people getting mad at whoever <gasps> got them sick. No way. Yeah, and I can't remember it at all. Did you use the words patient zero? Because no, I think that's no, I mad. think that would be a good punchline. Yeah. I'm not patient zero. I'll bring that there you go. bit back. I also don't think we live in a society that We live in a society. <laughs> <laughs> the if I have a fucking plane ticket, I'm not going to cancel my flight because I'm sick. Like, I'm not going to eat $400 because I'm sick. I'm going to have to get on that fucking flight sick. You got to wear it is the Asian uh, flu mask, then. Do you think that works? It, it keeps your breath to yourself. I think that you, a lot of your germs are coming out of your mouth. So, yeah, it's probably working. I mean... Are the people wearing those trying not to breathe the flu in or they're trying not to let the flu out? I always assumed it was the other way around because when they had that one thing. Either way, around, you're good, right? I feel like it, it could accomplish both purposes. You, if a, a well person could put on a mask and be protected from germs. A sick person could put on a mask and keep the germs to themselves. Well, I don't know why that never took off here. <laughs> well. All right. We'll see. I feel a little bit nauseous. Oh, are you pregnant? what mary said <laughs> mary did you know <laughs> what about you do you have any christmas memories of vomiting of vomiting actually i used to get sick around christmas all the time uh it's just you know the time of year i feel like i used to get uh the flu a lot i didn't vomit but i i have this wonderful christmas memory that means so much to me and nothing to anyone else. But I watched Mission Impossible for the first time as I woke up out of a fever dream on Christmas Day. We, I was sick on Christmas. We did Christmas presents. I made it through that. And then I snuggled up underneath a Toy Story blanket that my brother had gotten as a gift for Christmas. And we were watching the, the little uh, 
garden, the secret princess, the pre, the 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 the, the little princess garden. The the it was a movie about a girl who was a princess and went to an orphanage, and um, yeah, then everyone that, was mean secret, to her. Secret garden and uh, not the secret garden. The boy with the aunt. <laughs> That's it. Got it. That's it. Anyway, I uh, I passed out. I got really sick during that movie, and then I woke up at some point later just covered in my own sweat. My fever had broke underneath uh, the Woody and Buzz blanket, and I see the TV, and I assume we're still watching this princess movie, and I'm like, why is <laughs> is that guy punching uh, <laughs> this other guy so hard? This movie took a turn while I was asleep, and I like it more now. Uh this is I'm in fourth grade. So you're I think. like eight? I eight. I might have just turned nine, maybe. Um it's ninety six, ninety five, something like that. And anyway, the other kids were gone or something. They were I don't know what they were doing. And my parents thought I was still asleep, and so they had put in the VHS copy of Mission Impossible that they had been waiting all year to see and finally rented from Blockbuster Video. And I watched that movie so many times on Christmas break. It's PG thirteen, which was pretty taboo. Um, but I got I kind of got the first viewing in for free, right? And because uh, I just kind of laid there on the ground and uh, but after like I loved it so much, I kept asking my mom all break if I could watch it again, and she kind of felt like, well, I guess if you already saw it once, you know, why yeah. Not? And I just bugged her. I think I I think I watched it uh, like five times. Uh, just in, just in that week, I would watch it every day because I had never seen a movie so confusing before in my life. Yeah, because I don't know. I'm trying to imagine an eight year old wrapping their mind around. I had never seen a movie like lie before. Like there's a part where um, where John Voight, uh, Jim Phelps, whatever he tell he tells his version of the story. And then in Ethan's head, Ethan is Ethan is pretending to believe him, and in the conversation is like, "Okay, cool." But then in his head, he's playing out what he thinks could have happened, and like it's a so like you hear Jim saying what happened, and then see images that are not that, and like my eight year old mind was like, "What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> That's not what he's saying happened," and the. And then, like, and then in his mind, Ethan is like, no, that he could have also done it this way. And then they play it back again in a different version of events. And I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> Where's the princess? <laughs> I need to see this again. I'm going to watch it again. And um, I have been a lifelong fan of Mich of the Mission Impossible franchise. Oh, that makes so much sense. Don't tell my dad, okay, when you guys listen to this. But he is getting... Mission Impossible Fallout on Blu-ray for Christmas. It's the only thing that I bought him. And we saw it together, he and I. Oh, was uh, that the first time you saw it was with your dad? No, it was the second time I saw it. I saw it three <laughs> times. And I'm down to see it again. And I would really like to take advantage of my uh, parents' giant um, TV. Like, because it's a movie that uh, requires a big screen, a screen larger than I I have. And so I thought if I buy oh, this, this for slick. my dad, then I can be like, Dad, wouldn't it be great to watch it again? Right. Don't you want to let's put in that Mission Impossible? Mom, I don't even think you ever saw Mission Impossible. So really, I get to watch Mission Impossible Fallout for the fourth time on a on a big screen. That's really what this Christmas gift is all about. Very <sighs> slick. Very, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, but I spent a ton of money on their other present, which is a giant uh, charcoal drawing of Ethan uh, that I got in a in five my, broken frames. Yeah, <laughs> I got it. I got a, uh, a I finally got a nice big frame that put it in and there. My mom's going to cry when she sees Does it. She, has she seen it? She saw it on the Internet. Probably. She's seen it on the Internet. She doesn't know that she's getting it, though. Oh. And she's going to she's going to love it. She's going to like throw pictures of the temple off of the wall and onto <laughs> the floor to hang up this giant picture of Ethan. Also looking forward to this Christmas break when I get my parents to take Ethan to Smallfoot, which uh, is uh, you, if you guys aren't in the group. We talked about it uh, a little bit and we might I think there's an episode coming up where we might be able to reuse the story that I tell about Smallfoot. So I won't go into the whole thing here, but I took Ethan to see this movie Smallfoot 
it's about yetis, whatever. And then it was about me. It was about me leaving the Mormon church. Like that's the whole, the whole movie is about finding out like uh, someone who's been dedicated to their religion, their whole life, finding out that it's not true. And then that's that short sort of paradigm shift that they have to accept. And so my parents like, we want to take Ethan to animated movies. What movies does he want to see? And I'm like, yo, Ethan loves Smallfoot. <laughs> he really does, though. He sings. He he uh, he likes to listen to the song uh, from Smallfoot, the common song. So, anyway, ex Mormons out there. This is between? a. I think. Um, no, I don't think they will. But it, it's uh, uh, why not take the chance? Let's yeah. go. I think it's better than Bumblebee. Why not? Uh, even though Bumblebee is somehow certified fresh at 94%. I don't know what's going on. How did the other Transformer movies usually do? Uh, well, they were, the other Transformers movies were all uh, Michael Bay. This is the first Transformer movie that's not Michael Bay. Oh. And it's supposed to be different or better. But they, they're usually shit. I think the first Transformers got good reviews and then everything else after that was really, really bad. <laughs> it's really, really bad. I had the... the one of the very first dates that Tabitha and I ever went to was uh, the theater that I worked at did a screening for employees of Transformers 2. And we went to see it together. And there was a big, giant group of people, all the all the theater employees and, and their friends and spouses and stuff. And we were the only two people in that theater that walked out like, oh, man, so that was shit <laughs> and everyone else was like oh my god i loved it did you like it when the robots were racist caricatures <laughs> we were like we didn't we didn't like that at all like oh! <laughs> do you remember when that robot had testicles <laughs> i was like yeah, everyone's an idiot <laughs> um my very best Christmas, I love the Christmases when I was on my mission. I did two Christmases as a missionary in Italy, and I loved, I loved it. It was a time to, I don't know, you were without the comforts of home and family and stuff. You didn't get to be spoiled on Christmas. My first Christmas I spent with Matt Hatch. In Pesaro, Pesaro, like a lot of times the Mormon members will take missionaries in on Christmas and spoil them a lot. You know, that's that's very common. Right. They all want to pay it forward, like take care of someone else's kid while their kid gets taken care of by someone else. Pesaro was a really tiny branch, a very uh, poor branch, and uh, no one invited us anywhere for Christmas. Aww. Not a single, not the branch president, not, no, nobody we were just like in church being like, yeah, so uh, we don't really have any plans for Christmas. And uh, all the Italians are like, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so me and Matt spent the spent Christmas by ourselves. Christmas is a day like missionaries essentially have it off. You don't have to uh, proselyte or anything because it's Christmas. And some most missionaries like will go, you know, do something. But uh, we didn't. We, uh, we walked, or we like had a tiny little Christmas, uh, to ourselves and it's like cheesy, like all those Hallmark movies about the true meaning of Christmas, but it was true. We had a great time without presents. We, he read me a story, um, or a, a poem that his dad would always read on Christmas, to them and it was called like cowboys christmas or something they grew up on a ranch in new mexico and they told this 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 poem about this cowboy that uh rode his horse through this this giant blizzard to bring stuff i don't remember but it was just like sweet we had a tree that was i think like eight inches tall that we had put like two lights on and uh it was just us and we then spent christmas day walking around uh, giving stuff to uh, people in need. There's you know plenty of homeless people around. Just wandering. I mean, in Pesaro, we worked at the soup kitchen every week, so we knew right. all the homeless people in Pesaro. And we walked around and found them and gave them panettone and, and pandori and stuff like that. Um, and it was a, uh, it was nice. I don't think I'm supposed to pluralize pandori. I think it's just pandoro, but whatever. Uh, I was gonna say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My grammar. Ugh, so bad. 
the second Christmas I spent in Italy was in Venice, and it was Mestre, technically. And it was the only time in my entire two-year mission that I was in an apartment with four missionaries. Every other time, it was just me and my companion, and like just me and Matt or me and whoever. And it's so much more fun when you have four people. Oh, the mission is just is so it's so fascinating to me. You're alone with your companion, and that's it. When it's just you and him, you're together for 24 hours a day for who knows how long, and you have no respite. You have no there's no breaks or whatever. But like just like coming home at the end of the day and having two other people that you could talk to is just so it's so much nicer. But uh, it was a great apartment, and we all were getting pumped for Christmas. And we each talked about our family traditions that we loved so much at home and incorporated one of everyone's family traditions into our like we're like, okay, we're going to make French toast in the morning uh, because that's what Spencer does. Right. And but we made French toast out of Pandoro. It was oh, my God, it's so good. It was great. When someone is like, I we would bring me and my brothers and sisters would bring our mattresses into the living room and sleep in front of the Christmas tree on Christmas Eve. So we all did that. And we're like, all right, well that's Colin's uh, tradition. So we're going to do that. So we did one of everyone's traditions and it's just like us ourselves on our own, making this magical Christmas. We all bought presents for each other that year. Me and Spencer had t-shirts made for everyone in the apartment and uh, that were like real, real oh, I've funny. I've seen a video of that. Yeah, of seeing Colin's uh, reaction to opening that up. But on Christmas Eve, missionaries were allowed to go to midnight mass if they wanted to. That's a big mass in Catholicism on Christmas Eve. They do a mass at midnight. And Matt and I went to one in Pesaro. And then the four of us went to one in Venice in San Marco. San Marco is this giant beautiful ornate cathedral in venice and we went to midnight mass there venice already is it's a funny town because it's based it's just like how did you go to two i'm like the two different christmases oh okay. I, I went with matt uh, the year prior the year. in okay. yeah um but we went to anyway venice is just like after dark it's dead quiet um, all the tourists are gone or in their hotels or whatever. Like nothing. There's not a ton of nightlife in Venice. Um, but on Christmas Eve, it was a veritable ghost town. We had Venice all to ourselves. Just four giant, dumb, white American missionaries in trench coats. Uh, <laughs> just walking around this empty fog very foggy very cold fog and there's christmas lights up everywhere and it's just silent and you can just hear like the clack of our feet on the cobblestone everywhere we walked we went to a park and we just pulled out our scriptures and we read the story from luke we just read the nativity story to to each other and then we went to midnight mass and just had this beautiful experience in this nice church then uh, you know, made our way home and slept in front of the Christmas tree together and then woke up and had a great, just a, a fantastic Christmas. There's just something, I don't know, I just loved, I loved Christmas as a missionary. Christmas is the, is the is one of the two days a year you get to call home, too. I was going to say, do you get to communicate with the outside world? Yeah, you can. And I, uh, strict, obedient, Anciano Woodall, would not allow his phone call to be over the recommended 20-minute uh, <laughs> time frame. I only talked Jesus. to my family for 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, all right, Mom, well, uh, if I want to keep the spirit, uh, <laughs> I got to go. It was nice talking to you. I'll see you in six months. Uh, you get a call on Mother's Day, too. Mother's Day and Christmas, you get to call home. Not Father's Day? Not Father's Day. The patriarchy hurts men, too. Just, Just saying. Uh, but, uh, yeah, last Christmas was great too, was Ethan's Christmas that he first got, like the first time that he was really into Christmas and right. opening up his presents and stuff and, lo and like, you know, because before that he'd just kind of look at it and be like, okay, 
But now he's just like jumping on people and telling them thank you, like just giving them giant hugs and thanking them for flash action figures and stuff. And it was so happy for me. Yeah. We did that before actual Christmas. We went up to um, Boise, where my parents live, uh, for my birthday. And we all celebrated Christmas early. And then me, Jeremy, and Ethan went back to Utah. And uh, we spent Christmas Eve together. And Ethan went to sleep in front of the tree. The tree. And I felt so... Because I can remember doing that when I was really little. We stopped when we got too big for our dad to carry us to our beds. But when we were little, we were allowed to fall asleep in front of the Christmas tree. And then dad would pick us up, scoop us up in his big old arms and take us to our beds. And then we would wake up. And suddenly I'm looking down at Ethan and thinking about how I viewed my dad at that age. And how he just he felt like he had he was dad. He was dad. There was no, I had no uh, doubts about my dad's ability to parent, you know, or to to do anything. Dad can just do whatever. He can, he is all powerful. He knows everything. He can pick me up in his arms. Uh, I'm fine with him. I'm safe with him. And I'm, I'm like, oh my God, Ethan thinks that about me. And I have not a single clue what I'm doing. (laughs) I am a mess. My life's falling apart. Like I just like, uh, I haven't handled this divorce. Well, I, I have no idea how we're going to live or anything, blah, blah, blah. And he's just like asleep peacefully, just under like his, all the, the multicolored lights on his face. And he's just, he's just happy. And he just thinks that I'm great. And I thought about that a lot that night. Until I uh, like I watched Die Hard with Jeremy. <laughs> uh, dude, Die Hard. Oh, I remember that night. That we watched. That I watched Die Hard. I had a rough night that night. That was. Uh, that was the night everyone came up to you and told you that mean I've things. abandoned them. Yeah. This was uh, an assembly line of people because I everyone just feels like I leave them because my parents lived on opposite coasts and I'm the only child of those two parents. So my dad and stepmom had two sister, like two daughters that are my sisters, and then my mom and stepdad had one. And so my whole life, wherever I go, I'm abandoning some siblings. And uh, everyone's hurt over it. Everyone's sad over it. And then I have like weird guilt about my inability to stay. And this was kind of the end of the marriage between Jason and I. Like We had split up, but we're still living together. And uh, I brought I brought my sisters upstairs to talk to me while I folded or while I wrapped presents or something and wanted to tell them about a TV show I was writing, I think, uh, a pitch idea. And they were hammered. <laughs> and then one of them was just like, do you remember when you said you would be back and then we didn't see you for five years? Which is not tr- accurate. I was like, no, I came back after that. I came back six months after that. They were like, because I lived in Delaware for a minute when I left Dustin. And so uh, she was transposing those two things. Because I was like, no, I came back and visited on meth once before I disappeared. And uh, <laughs> Well, uh, listen. Yeah, look. If we're going to get technical. <laughs> yeah, semantics. I got some semantics here. And then I did visit. I stole all your things while I visited. I don't know how you <laughs> forgot. I don't know why you would construe that as being abandoned. And then the other sister started cr- I don't fully remember. Anyway, it was rough. It was a rough night of... And I wasn't going to go downstairs and get any sympathy from uh, the husband I was splitting up from. You know, I tried. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did try. I was like, man, that is rough upstairs um, right now. They are drunk and saying all kinds of shit about me leaving. And he was just like, you're incapable of being vulnerable. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go cry in my car. <laughs> Damn. And then you texted me. And I was like, ah, I'm watching Die Hard. <laughs> anyway. I'm going to be at my parents' house this this Christmas again, 
And we'll probably read Luke 2 before we open presents, which is something that they like to do. And it's just got a different meaning to me. But it is fun to, like, think about Venice and when those stories were real to me, like, at word for word, literal truth, as far as it was translated correctly. And now I think... I don't know if I used to talk about the true meaning of Christmas, the true spirit of Christmas. And it really hasn't changed at all now that I don't believe in the origin story of Christmas. Like that I believed in like giving and like, and, and because of the gift that God gave us that day, God gave us the gift of his son, the gift of eternal life, uh, the gift of the atonement that day. And that's why we give other people presents and the fact that I don't believe that anymore really hasn't changed Christmas at all for me. I still love it. I still love buying other people gifts. I still love going home, all the, all the traditions that we have and treats that we have and just like doing nothing but watching movies with my family and stuff. I love seeing Ethan tear open presents and get so excited and be so happy all that stuff still real to me even though like i don't know i thought that that maybe this is a dumb point to make but there was a part of me that was afraid that all this stuff would change when i let go of mormonism that it wouldn't be the same anymore yeah well i feel like that's a theme in all of your areas of life so I was afraid, and then I was like, fine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're glad you guys uh, listened to our podcast and hope you guys have a Merry Christmas. Uh, Jessa, do you want to try saying what days we have shows? <laughs> uh, January 10th. January 10th in Irvine, California, the Irvine Improv. Please come to that show. Yeah, we need to impress the people at the improv. And we um it would probably we probably should have remembered to announce the show. Uh oh, but uh, we suck at our job. We're really bad. <laughs> it's a lot. It's so much work. It's a lot. January twenty sixth, we are coming to Glendale, Arizona. Pre sale tickets will be on our website this week. Get those because they will sell out. Yeah. And we'll add a second show if it has sold out in a couple of weeks. But otherwise, you're burnt. You're burnt. <laughs> anyway, uh, Merry Christmas from the Mormon and the Meth Head. If you put a Mormon and a Meth Head together, this is what they sound like. Aaron Woodall and just a radar fence. Listen to them talking to Mike. How do you think you are about being vulnerable now? Yeah, man, it's uh, been a big year in uh, vulnerability. I am still not good at it. You're getting a lot of practice. I have done it. I do it. 
where I think before I just had like a mechanism that prevented me from even attempting it. So I think if anybody needed that from me, I just would push them out of my life. And I just, I was just like, I'm just not that kind of person. It's just not who I am. I'm aloof. And then I wanted to be vulnerable with you. And then had a lot of experiences where I was just like, oh, this just confirms my fears. Which is so interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this. Things, things confirming your fears. The idea that something's confirming your fears. But I have become more vulnerable in all areas of life. And it doesn't work out for me. A lot it doesn't work out for me. Like I, I now will initiate a conversation with someone who I don't know. And it often just gets weird, which would, yeah. Well, I just what I was avoiding. You know what I mean? No, because that I, seemed I had insurmountable. Bad experiences with vulnerability, but it was like a faucet I couldn't turn off. It was like I know how this will turn out. I'm going to tell this person how I feel, and it will not be reciprocated. But I could, I can't stop it. And I th- feel like I've gotten uh, in the last year. I've gotten better at uh not giving everything giving all of myself to everyone that i meet and like holding back and uh, being able to turn that faucet off because you're right i just i think a lot of people um can't deal with it or don't want to and they just i don't know it was such a like a built-in mechanism for me that just prevented it from happening but there was also a lot of judgment i would see women bearing their soul to men and then getting rejected and I would just be like well you're fucking dumb like why would you give him that power I just wouldn't the extent to which I would like there was a a mechanism running in my mind there's a program that runs in the back of my mind and assesses the risk with the way that I'm going to word a sentence and whether or not I will be giving too much power to that person and that is like deeply ingrained from childhood from getting unpredictable responses from my mom and just developed a way of communicating that prevents that. And so a lot of my indirect communication is just me letting you know that I want something without us having to have the awkward. So I still do it, but now I do it consciously. So if I want to ask someone for something, but there's a, I think they might not want to do it rather than directly asking them for it, which puts them on the spot, which means they'll give it to me, but they don't want to. I'll float it into the ether and let it be their idea if that's what they want to do. But I only learned that that was a way of communicating after dissecting the fact that I never directly asked for anything. I never reached out and talked to people that didn't come talk to me first because of the potential for rejection and I've had several things recently where I just try to become friends with people almost like a kid would just like hey do you want to be friends and it's worked out bad well you have to ask their mom uh, <laughs> if they can play don't you, you ask the wrong person but it's strange that my relationship with failure which is okay fuck it if I fail here it's fine I'll just try again, or this isn't the one that is that I'm supposed to see through to the end. There just doesn't feel like there's stakes for me most of the time. It's I'm like, okay, failure's part of success and I allow it to happen, but so weird that I never wanted to allow that to happen in human interaction and relationships. These pills are fucking me up. Mm. 